Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for bringing us into your presence this morning. Holy Spirit, we feel your presence here already and we thank you. We ask, Lord God, that you would touch our hearts today in new ways. Father, I pray that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to say to us today, but that you would speak, for we, your servants, are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Children, you can all go out to your classes. Thank you. Just give them a second to get out. <laughs> Mom saying, get out, go now. <laughs> oh, God bless you all. It's so wonderful to be with you here again today as usual, but in a different way because I get to stand in for Kirk while he's away. Um, anyway, they were saying uh, outside this morning, yeah, we like it when Michelle tells her stories, but I don't really have a story for you today, so oh well. But... Um, <laughs> You know, I was, I was recently going through some drawers at home, and while I was doing that, I found all sorts of treasures. Now, every mom and probably dad in the room knows what I'm talking about. Things that were made by my kids long ago. And I got to thinking about how some of the most precious gifts we have uh, are special not because of their monetary value, but rather because of the sentiment behind them. The value of a gift, rather like beauty, is really in the eye of the beholder, you know? And I've got all manner of lopsided bowls and hastily drawn stick figures that look nothing like what they're supposed to be, but they're valuable to me because they were made by my children. And although their hands might have been clumsy and their efforts um, limited, they really communicated the love that was in their hearts. Now, I'm not sure if you've really given it much thought before, but there are very few occasions recorded for us in Scripture of anyone giving Jesus anything. I mean, I've come to realize that actually people wanted far more from him than they were ever wanting to give to him. And you know, as I reflect, I can't help but think over the last 2,000 years, we really haven't changed that much. Although it's not our main passage today, I really wanted to set this up this morning by looking briefly at the first gifts that were ever given to Jesus. And um, these were the gifts, of course, that were brought by the wise men. And it's in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, where it records the incident for us, saying, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So Magi, of course, in case you were wondering, was the name for wise men, the, the kind of wise men that kings would consult in those days. And we're told that these men came from the east when they saw a certain star in the night sky. And there's really strong evidence that these men came from Persia. 
which was the area where the prophet Daniel had lived during the Jewish exile so long before. And many scholars have wondered if it wasn't perhaps some of Daniel's own writings that had led these wise men to Jerusalem in search of a special king whose birth would be marked by a spectacular celestial event. Whoever these wise men of scripture were, we're told that the motivation for their bringing gifts to Jesus in the first place was so that they might worship him. And that's really important. We go on in that same chapter of Matthew in verse 11 to learn, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. So you can see that those two things, worship and the giving of gifts, is combined. Now, we could spend time looking at what those treasures were and how they foretold what Christ had come to do. For example, we could dwell on the fact that myrrh was a common element that was used in the embalming of a dead body, which, if you think about it, is a really strange gift to give a baby, right? Except for there at Christ's birth, the gift of his sacrificial death was made known also. So there's a lot that we could look at, but I think that our main focus needs to be just one thing. It's there in the text. They saw the child and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their gifts and presented him with treasures. These men recognized Christ for who he was, and they chose to bow before him and worship. Coming from far away in the east, we realized that in fact they had to turn their backs on their old way of life in order to come to him. And there intertwined with their worship of him, they presented him with their treasures, things that were valuable to them. So with that really as our background and our setup, then I want us to look at Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. Now, believe me, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture, but I'm really praying that God would speak to us in new ways, as he so often does. So Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50, tells us of someone else who gave Christ a precious gift. The story takes place when Jesus was ministering in Galilee, and so it's not to be confused with something very similar that happened to him in Bethany in John chapter 12. Jesus at this time was in Galilee, and he had had a conflict with some of the Pharisees living in that area as he was ministering. And then Luke reveals in chapter 7, verse 36, that one of those very Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, 
She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, in this encounter, uh, we'll pause it right there. In this encounter, we see that apart from Jesus, there are two other principal characters. On the one hand, there is the Pharisee who was an upstanding citizen, a respected man in the community, a man of substance. On the other, there is the sinful woman who could only dream of being accepted or respected. And the chances of her ever fulfilling that dream were actually less than zero. One was at the top of the social ladder, the other was way down at the very bottom of it. So the question is, how did she come to be there? Certainly she wasn't invited, so how did she get in? Well, in those days, many of the houses of well-to-do people were built around a central courtyard where there would uh, often be a garden in which meals could be eaten when the weather was warm. And it was custom that when a rabbi or someone important was invited to a meal at such a house, all kinds of people would come in to listen to the discussion around the table in order to hear the wise and helpful words that the rabbi might share with the other guests. So it seems very likely then that this woman managed to squeeze in through that crowd unnoticed. For the story, though, to have its full impact, it's worth understanding something else about the culture of that time. In those days, when people ate, they reclined at the table, propped up on their left elbow, and their feet were stretched out behind them. So it was important for that reason to have clean feet. When an invited guest arrived, it was customary for the host to greet them with a kiss. An honored guest, such as a rabbi, would have their head anointed by the host as well in welcome. And then after their sandals were removed, the lowliest servant of the household would be designated to wash their feet from the dust of the road. If no servant were available, the most basic sign of respect at that time was to ensure that cool water was made available for the guests to wash their own feet. Now, it is going to become quickly apparent that Simon the Pharisee did not do any of this for Jesus, and you have to wonder why. I mean, did he just forget? Or was it a sign of disrespect? Why would he miss offering the most basic hospitality to his guest? And as soon as you ask that question, the next is on our mind is why would Simon the Pharisee have invited him in the very first place? I mean, perhaps he invited Jesus for dinner for the purpose of entrapment 
in the hopes of finding some reason to bring a charge against him. Remember, Jesus had just argued with some of the Pharisees. Or perhaps this was just an evening of interesting entertainment for the Pharisee. He may well have been a collector of celebrities, wanting to just add Jesus' name to others so that he could drop it in everyday conversation. Of course, it's possible that Simon was an admirer of Jesus and was trying to decide for himself on who he was and what he taught. But the whole atmosphere of discourtesy makes that rather unlikely. And it becomes plain from Simon's actions that he didn't recognize Jesus Christ for who he was. So I want you to imagine the scene. Just as the group begins to settle with everyone in their place at the table, a little murmur begins to ripple through the crowd. (gasps) What is she doing here? That woman, oh good grief, she's come in from the street. She looks stricken. My word, what is she doing? Oh, oh, surely that isn't proper. And indeed, what that woman did next was not proper at all because she came to Christ's feet, and as she did, she began to cry. Tears of repentance, tears of gratitude, tears of love splashed down on his feet, leaving small trails in the dirt that was still on them. And so, untying her hair, she began to wipe away the tears and the dust that covered them. What anyone thought of her at that moment just didn't matter. She had spent her life learning to ignore what they said anyway. What mattered to her at that moment was what Jesus thought. Although we're not told, I'm I'm absolutely certain that this woman would have either met Jesus or heard him speak before this. Because you see, she knew that he was different to every other man she'd met. He was so different, in fact, that she refused to let what the Pharisees and their friends would think of her stop her from coming to Christ. Jesus had touched her heart so deeply that she brought him a gift, a small bottle of perfume. The fact that this particular perfume was in an alabaster jar tells us a lot about it. You see, it was precious, costing as much as a year's wages. And I'm going to give you a second to just work out how much that might be in today's money. A year's wages. Typically, this kind of bottle would have been totally sealed in alabaster and could only be broken open by snapping the neck of the jar, which meant, of course, that the perfume within it had to be used up all at once because it couldn't be saved once that seal was broken. It was incredibly valuable. But the question still comes to mind, why this particular perfume. 
Luke, in his very understated way, merely tells us that she was a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, but in reality, she was a prostitute. Proverbs 7 tells us that it was customary in those days for women who were engaged in this way of life to cover their beds with colored linen and to perfume the covers with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. So why then would this woman use this perfume on Christ's feet? Perhaps the obvious answer was that she was leaving her old way of life, and in true repentance, she spilt out the tools of her trade, as it were, at his feet. But I want you to know that I believe at the core of her being, this woman was no different to us in her desire to be loved. And I imagine that despite her way of life, her dearest hope was that someday, somehow, she would matter to someone. That there would be a man who would see her for who she truly was. And that he would be able to look past all of her sin. And that he would love her. And to make that man different from all the rest. She was saving a perfume, not just any perfume, but her treasure. This bottle, as small as it was, would have come from her hope chest. And it would have embodied all of her dreams for the future, all of her hopes for tomorrow. And she meant to give it to Jesus. Now, I don't know what she thought it would be used for, or how she thought he might use it. Perhaps she thought it could be raised, sold, and uh, sold to raise funds for his work. I don't know, but I do know that as she stood there weeping, she opened her eyes, and noticing his dusty feet, she realized that no one had taken care to see to his needs. And out of a heart overflowing with gratitude and worship, she poured out her precious perfume on Christ's feet, using it to bless him in a way that perhaps even she had not expected. Don't miss how prophetic this is, for she pours out her treasure, symbolizing all of her hopes and her dreams for her future, upon the one who is so soon to be poured out for her. When we glimpse the tenderness, the intimacy of that moment, how much more do we feel the sharp barb of pride that comes from the Pharisee next? When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The very name Pharisee meant a separated one. And that's exactly what these religious men were. They were totally separated from those who did not dress like them, talk like them, pray like them, or behave like them. 
Jesus wasn't separated from sinners. And that was one of the things that they found most infuriating about him. Keeping his thoughts to himself, though, Simon not only judges the woman, but he passes judgment on Jesus too, thinking that if he really were a holy man, he would separate himself from the sinner. And it's then that Jesus turns to the Pharisee, and I believe says to him very gently, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now, truly, Simon was a man who was well-versed in the art of foot-kissing himself, (laughs) but of the insincere variety. However, I'm sure that there was just a trace of contempt in his voice when he said to Jesus, tell me, teacher, I'm quite sure that he didn't expect to learn anything from Christ now. But Jesus begins to tell him a story. He says in verse 41, Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. The thing that's most interesting about what Jesus says to him is that both individuals were indebted. And do you notice that neither of them had the money to repay their debt? You know, sometimes I think, like Simon, we imagine that our debt to God is less than it is. But the truth is, how much you owe is irrelevant if you have no way to repay your debt. It doesn't matter, big or small, then. The only way it can ever be made right is if that debt is cancelled or if it is paid for you. And there, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the most precious gift of all, That Christ, who, being in very nature God, was willing to make himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and was willing to die on a cross. He took our punishment. He paid our debt. And no matter how much we owe, in that act, he made us right with God the Father. And it is as we understand that incredible love for us that we are inspired to give him our very best in worship out of a heart overflowing with gratitude. Christ refers to that as he speaks to Simon more about the woman. Look at verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured out perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. 
but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, I love the fact that Jesus starts off by asking Simon, do you see this woman? Because really that was Simon's problem. He didn't really see her. And I think that that is always going to be a challenge to us. Do we see others? The person who serves us in the restaurant, the checkout clerks at the grocery store, the homeless guy on the street corner. The good news is that Jesus sees even the least of these. And let me say, if you have ever felt overlooked by others, take heart, because Jesus won't ignore you. He knows your deepest secrets, and yet he still loves you and desires good for you. You know, I wonder whatever happened to these folk. You know, we're not told, but I do know that what Christ said to the Pharisee that day would have haunted him forever for two reasons. Because Jesus knew what his innermost thoughts were without him ever having voiced them, and because he'd been contrasted to a harlot and she'd come out better at the end of the comparison. And what are the women? Well, we know from verse 48 and verse 50 that she was forgiven. Jesus, the sinless one who could have condemned her, forgave her. And free from her previous life, we're told that she went in peace. But I want you to read verse 50 again with me. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Do you see it's not her gift or her service that saved her. Rather, it was the faith that prompted the service. She believed Jesus. And because she was willing to trust him, she gratefully gave him her most treasured possession, the perfume that symbolized all of her hopes and her dreams for the future. Let me invite the band up. Will you come? <coughs> the reality is, this cannot remain a story in the Bible. For in the same way, Jesus wants my past. He wants my pre present, and he wants my future. Now, if you really knew me, you might think, well, that's not much of a gift. <laughs> but it's the one that he wants, nonetheless. I have not always been a Bible teacher. Until my mid to late 20s, I was a whiskey drinker. I smoked 35 cigarettes a day. And that's just the part of my life that I'll tell you about. <laughs> I remember the night that I gave my life to him, I was in bed. I was lying there in the darkness, and I realized that 
for as long as I could remember, I had been fighting him. I had wanted control of my life so badly, and I had taken it. But that night, I realized that with me as the captain of my ship, things had worked out badly. I had made a total mess of my life. On the outside, I want you to know, things looked great. But on the inside, they were horrible. That night, as I lay in the darkness, I prayed, Lord, I do not know if you still want my life. Now, after everything that's happened, but if you do, please, please, will you take it? And everything that I had wanted so desperately for myself, I laid at his feet. And I'm glad to tell you that he did still want my life. And even as that woman was not too far gone for Christ to save, neither was I. The reality is, though, as I've walked with him over the years, there have been many other times where I've been brought to that same point of realizing that I'd held something back, you know? And again, laying down something even deeper at his feet. Now, I know that most of us today would say, well, I gave my life to the Lord years ago. So surely this message just really isn't for me. And so I guess my question then to you is, do you see yourself in the character of Simon? He was a religious man who no doubt thought that he was worshipping God. But in truth, he was filled with pride and self-interest. He was quick to pass judgment on others, I guess because as long as they were worse than him, it meant he never had to confront his own sin. Simon was content to add Jesus on to his social circle, but he wasn't really willing to worship him. Honestly, I think that there are many people like that today who are happy to visit with Jesus at the weekend to say, well, I know him. But they don't want to give him all of their hopes, their dreams, their tomorrows. Scripture reveals that true worship and gift-giving are interlinked. And real worship goes far beyond what happens on a Sunday. The truth is that worship will cost us something. In fact, it'll cost us everything. I guess my question is to you. What gift will you bring? <laughs> 